So welcome to the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia podcast series. I'm Dr. Rachel Roberts-Thompson, and I'm a medical oncologist from South Australia, from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. In this podcast, we're going to discuss EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer, how we improve outcomes through sequencing, diagnostics, and how to treat post-TKI treatment. We have Dr. Vanessa Chin joining us. She's a medical oncologist and lung cancer researcher doing postdoctoral research. She works at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney and the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. We also have Dr. Angeline Lowe from Sydney's North Shore, and she's living with lung cancer. I'm really looking forward to her perspectives on how we access diagnostic tests and treatment. Really pleased and excited to be sharing this today. I'd also like to thank you to Roche for sponsoring the podcast. Now, so I guess just to set the scene a little bit, it's 2022 and we have a patient with EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. So I'm, I guess I'm keen to ask Vanessa what she views the standard of care treatment for that patient and what tests she relies on to determine that that treatment's appropriate. Thanks, Rachel. So I think... Now, anyone who's diagnosed with a lung adenocarcinoma has reflex um, next generation sequencing done as a matter as a standard of care. And through that, we can diagnose an EGFR mutated lung cancer and, and subtype that mutation into mutations that are likely to be sensitive to standard TKIs or insensitive to standard TKIs. Currently, I am using osimertinib, a third-generation TKI, as my standard of care. It's very well tolerated, it's highly effective, and also, of course, has excellent activity in the brain, which we know protects patients from developing brain metastases, but also helps treat those patients who do have brain metastases at diagnosis. I think we are getting new evidence about how we can augment the efficacy of osimertinib. And, and whilst those things are perhaps not the standard of care at the moment, we are getting increasing trial data about including radiotherapy, for example, in patients with small volume metastatic disease. There was a recent paper published on this. And I think as well, adding in chemotherapy with osimertinib is probably something we're going to see in the near future. But at the moment, osimertinib as a sole therapy is my treatment of choice. Just a question for Angeline, a personal question really, but how she's found the ability to access those treatments and the tolerability of those treatments. Thanks, Rachel. Well, I don't think I had uh, any choice because at that time when I first diagnosed, I know nothing about lung, lung cancer. I know nothing about, you know, the treatments that are uh, available. So uh, my oncologist said, well, I, I did do a biopsy, yeah. I have two, two lesions, one on the right and one on the left upper lung, uh, upper, upper lobe of the lung. Well, I mean, I'm totally reliant on my uh, oncologist. And I must say that, uh, yes, I do have one of the best in the country. I'm very proud of my oncologist and that he is looking, I mean, taking good care of me. Yes. So um, he said, okay, we'll try the first generation, um, which is Gifitinib. You know, he said, I have patients who, who have survived over 10 years on this, you know, and, and, and doing well. And uh, so I went on that first. 
But uh, within, I think, three or four months, I developed very uh, horrific side effects with my face all red and skin peeling off my face. And he said, this is not normal. This is not what other patients of his uh, has, you know, when they when they break up in rashes, which are really different, which could be just, you know, uh, pus-filled uh, rashes. But mine was like a burnt rash. So I don't know whether I'm the only one in the whole of Australia with skin peeling off. I can actually see the skin, you know, peeling off. So anyway, after suffering for several more months, my oncologist found a, a good dermatologist who has interest in TKI drugs. And he put me on a different antibiotics. And uh, after a few months, it's all cleared off. So now I'm very proud, you know, that I got back a complexion, especially this is very, very important to women. You know, I, and I, I will say that to any treating oncologist, you know, how important this is because it really consumed me as a patient. And I, I, I believe all the other patients too, because we have our lung cancer blocks. I belong to three blocks, uh, one, one Australian block and one, two international ones. A lot of um, patients are feeling you know the, the the side effects especially what we can see angeline did you move on to an alternative therapy so yes uh, i finally moved on to to osimutinib yes and and this is supposed to be called that uh, mal as, as uh, dr Vanessa mentioned just now but i still had the same problem until you know, I, I went to see this uh, dermatologist and had that treated, and I'm I'm okay now. Yes, and I'm tolerating osimetinib very well. I'm on the lowest dose. Very good. So it is tailoring that approach really. But I think moving on, I guess, to the important parts of this talk is a patient is responding to their osimetinib first line setting, and and then resistance develops. Vanessa, I'm very keen to know with your progressing patients how you go about sequencing their tumour, how practically you go about that. Yeah, so there are a couple of avenues to do this. So in someone who's coming off a first-generation TKI, then the biopsy can go through the usual processes because we will pick up a T790 mutation with the standard of care sequencing platforms. In someone who's progressing on osimertinib, where we're looking for more novel targets, then that gets more complicated. So I try and get a core biopsy done and then the patient has a couple of options. So where I work, I have access to the most study, which is a sequencing study. They use a sort of standard 200 gene panel and that is available under the auspices of a research study. So the advantage is there's no cost to the patient. However, it does take sort of between eight to 10 weeks for those results to come back. So for a patient in whom that sort of timing isn't going to work that's not ideal we also don't pick up amplifications and or fusions so in someone where we need urgent results then it's the commercial sequencing platforms that are used and those range in cost from sort of two and a half thousand to three and a half thousand dollars which of course for some patients is not is not possible 
In patients in whom can't get a tissue biopsy, then liquid biopsy may be the only option and there are no sort of standard of care or research studies that I know of that offer sequencing in that circumstance, so that has to be paid for out of pocket. So it can be a really difficult decision to make for some patients and in some patients it just isn't possible. So that's, that's a sad loss. And, and, and one of the, yeah, one of the limitations that we have. Agree, agree. So I'm very keen to ask Vanessa, a patient might be progressing, first of all, extracranially, and then we might talk about the intracranial progression as well. But how would she approach her patient? Yes, yeah, so I think for me, the key um, decision is, do I need to change the osimertinib to a different therapy? So the first question I ask myself, does this patient have sort of oligoprogression, so progressive disease in a small number of lesions, or do they have more global progression? And in patients who have oligoprogressive disease, then I tend to treat those lesions with radiotherapy and try and sort of eke out the osimertinib treatment for as long as possible. So in the past, I've seen you know, isolated brain progression or for some reason, progression in bone only. That seems to be, in my experience, quite common. And then that the rest of the disease remains under good control. So I think stereotactic radiotherapy techniques are a nice way of treating patients with minimal toxicity and leaving them on their osimertinib therapy. My question, I guess, is um, that patient's progressing and you're thinking about what your next line of treatment is. Do you routinely biopsy re-biopsy everyone on progression? And if so, why? And if a biopsy is not easily performed, what are your other approaches? Yeah, so I, I guess I don't routinely biopsy progressive disease. So if someone has a single progressive lesion that I think can be treated with radiotherapy, then I usually just go ahead and do that. If I'm concerned that that patient actually needs a different systemic therapy, then I do try and re-biopsy them. And I think the reason for that is twofold. One, someone who's got rapidly progressive disease, we know that there is a risk that they transform into a small cell variant. And of course, chemotherapy is needed fairly quickly, but also increasingly, certainly in New South Wales, and I'm sure and in other states, we have access to more comprehensive next generation sequencing over and above the standards of care, which can sometimes guide further therapies. In terms of if a biopsy is not possible, Liquid biopsy is an, an attractive technique and, and is available, but sadly at quite a high cost to patients. So I do use it, but sparingly and using it in the diagnostic phase, you know, when someone first presents gives, throws up a whole lot of issues. So patients who have difficult to biopsy disease at their first presentation, liquid biopsy is a great option, except we don't, those results are not acceptable through the PBS. On progression, however, sometimes they are useful, but the cost is several thousand dollars, so it's not an option for all patients. What are you looking for on the rebiopsy? You talked about the small cell set of patients, but what other sort of mutations are you expect might you see? And I'm interested to hear how you might target those. Yeah, so I think in Australia, obviously our hands are a little bit tied by what we can access. We know that we can see MET mutations, we can see uh, 797 mutations, we can see some fusions, things like RET, even ALK, and that these in sort of early clinical studies 
can respond to other TKIs or other treatments. I tend to do it in a more practical sense to see if there's anything targetable with a clinical trial. For example, the last patient I saw had a MET mutation and there was a MET targeted therapy in a clinical trial at a nearby hospital. So I think we all do that in the hope that we'll see something that will help guide a patient into a clinical trial. It's also worth mentioning that standard next-generation sequencing panels won't necessarily pick up fusions, nor will they pick up amplifications. So if we're doing sort of comprehensive genomic analysis, it would include all of those things, which of course is not so easy to do. With the, the, with the MET amplification, what's your expected rate of finding that? I've sort of read between 5 and 20%, up to 30% post-osimertinib. What is, what's your feeling about that? My feeling is it's probably more common than we realise because the majority of us are not doing this in, in the real world. So also we might be doing looking at mutations, not amplifications. There is also some drugs, you know, we have a trial open, which is just looking at high expression. So just looking at protein expression of MET rather than of amplification or mutation. So I think abnormalities in MET are probably higher than described in the studies. And, and maybe over the next sort of two or three years, as this technology is more available, we'll see what the real incidence is. No, that's actually really, really exciting, I think, in, in that space and, and probably changing. You know, we don't have things easily available yet, but it seems to be coming through. I think, you know, if, if you don't find small cell or a transformation or a, a MET amplification that you can put a patient on a clinical trial, what would your next systemic therapy choice be? So my standard of care is, is really chemotherapy-based. And I guess, you know, in this era of immune therapy, most patients want to know whether immune therapy is right for them. And sadly, we know that immune therapy doesn't work so well in EGFR-mutated lung cancer. And in the combination trials looking at immune therapy with chemotherapy, they're very underrepresented. So the choices we really have are chemotherapy, doublets. So, you know, most of these patients are, have adenocarcinoma. So carboplatin permatrexid is, is commonly used. I do use Impower 150 here. So carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab and atezolizumab, which, as you know, is one of the only clinical trials to include EGFR-mutated patients after failure of TKI. They represented a very small population, but I feel like it's enough to justify trying and, and a lot of patients really want that opportunity to try immune therapy, even though, you know, we, we tell them that the evidence doesn't suggest that it's going to be overly effective. Yeah, no, I, um, I sort of agree there, but, it, you know, and do you think we need those four drugs? four of them yeah so interesting i mean i think the, the the it seems like the bevacizumab may add something in this population and certainly the trials with chemotherapy and immune therapy or just immune therapy alone have been very disappointing in this patient group so i don't think as a first systemic therapy after tki we've got enough evidence to say we can use immune therapy alone or use immune therapy with chemotherapy. So I think if we're going to use immune therapy in this setting, that the Impower 150 regimen is probably 
the best that we have despite being quite toxic. So, you know, patients who are used to living with their cancer quite comfortably face quite a difficult decision because that regimen is hard. I agree there, definitely. The patients um, who might have progressing brain metastasis and interested in your approach to that group of patients. So I'm lucky to work at a centre where we have SRS available on site and an and a radiation oncologist who's willing to use SRS. I think the most she's treated for me is 14 brain lesions. So I try and avoid whole brain radiotherapy if me, if I can, because obviously these patients tend to be younger. They have usually been very well up until this point, and it, it, it does break my heart to have to try and give them whole brain radiotherapy. So if SRS can be done, then I do do that. If we do have a situation where SRS is done over a large area of the brain, then I do also consider changing their systemic therapy at that point, but, but not always. So really based on what I think the patient can tolerate, what their wishes are, and what can be achieved with SRS. The role of maybe increasing the dose of the osimertinib, is that an approach or not something that you use? It's not something that I personally use, although I guess there is studies to show that there is efficacy. There will be issues, I guess, with accessing that dose of drug and how would we double the dose and, and still uh, prescribe through the PBS. Also, uh, even though 80 milligrams daily is, is well tolerated, I have to say, I would say close to half of my patients need a dose reduction at some point for something. So I haven't tried the 160 milligram dose, but I assume that's quite toxic. Have you, have you tried it? I have, I have, but I think Angeline talked about some of the toxicities that she experienced and it's, you know, the, the paronychia and, you know, the, the loose bowels and things can be troublesome. But I, I just wanted to touch on some of the things that you think are the exciting new treatments that, that are coming through for patients progressing on first-line TKI. We do have the four-drug combination, but there, are, there seems to be some clinical trials that are coming through with antibody drug conjugates and using even CLA4 inhibitors. But would you maybe predict what we might be doing in the next couple of years? I mean, some of the clinical trials have been designed really beautifully and, you know, biopsying people on progression and then deciding on their treatment based on molecular targets that are present or absent. So, you know, targeting MET, you know, sometimes even combining first generation with third generation TKIs to, to target their 797 mutation, which confers a particular type of drug resistance. So I imagine that we are going to be able to delay chemotherapy in these patients for much longer um, and that we're going to be able to treat these common drug resistance mutations and continue osimertinib but add in a drug that that targets that resistant population so that's going to take a real culture shift for us where you know comprehensive genetic sequencing will have to be available to these patients as a standard of care and also that osimertinib will be able to be continued beyond progression, which is currently not something that we can that we can legitimately do. So I would hope that this ends up looking a little bit more like ALK mutated lung cancer, where we can sequence patients through therapies and sometimes treat patients for a decade without having to introduce chemotherapy. So that would be my hope and prediction for the future. Right, that's fantastic. Angelina, I'm just wondering if I could ask you a little bit about what's 
happening on the blogs in terms of excitement in this field and how do we best support our patients with lung cancer to have these tests and get them the most up-to-date treatments, I guess. Yeah. Uh, before I answer that, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of you. I mean, all of you who are working so hard to look after us and to find solutions for us. You know, um, it's really appreciated. I marvel at how all of you are working and, and working with the drug companies as well, uh, together as a team to give us the best outcome in terms of, you know, I mean, our survivorship as well. Now I forgot what you asked me. <laughs> I guess I just um, am keen to know how we can best support our lung cancer patients to all get access, you know, uh, to maybe that second biopsy and to also then uh, get the information that's needed in terms of making some decisions and any other thoughts you might have in how we can support patients with lung cancer. Yeah. I think one of the first things that comes to us as patients, you know, is, is the fear. When is it going to happen? You know, when is it going to happen when the, the osimertinib or, or the cancer turns resistance to the osimertinib. So this is the question that's always asked in the block. And from what we can see, if I'm not wrong, you know, and, and I'm not sure whether there's any research on that or not, that within two to three years, yeah, people say, oh, I've already got progression. Yeah. So now I'm moving into my third year and I can tell you that it's also a mental anguish where you fear for it, even though we are celebrating. I mean, we, we had it really so easy now with osimitinib. With, uh, with I mean, uh, we are able to function, we're able to do all sorts of things, you know, I mean, live a normal life. All right? and, and, and this fear, okay, what are we going to do next? And, and I can tell you that every patient fears chemotherapy. Yeah? And, and this is discussed down there too. And we do have quite a number of them. I mean, when we say quite a number, because it's a concentration of all of us who have lung cancer, you know, quite a number die after the chemo. So this is that kind of fear. And I, I think that uh, communication is important, you know, for our medical team to, to communicate with us, to, to tell us. I, I mean, I, but probably I, I, I may be different from other people. For me, I like to know Okay. So when I know, I'm mentally prepared. Okay. But uh, sometimes uh, people don't know. I mean, they, they also not be able to ask the right questions. That's another thing. Right? So we are totally dependent on, on our uh, specialists, our oncologists to tell us. Uh, and well, you know, so what else can I say? That up, I guess that upfront communication is very important, isn't it? And, and I guess trying to give our patients a little bit of an idea of what we might have in mind for the next step. And if it is a four-drug combination, then there's a little bit of preparation about what that might look like. If, we, if it might be another biopsy, there's at least that communication that that's what we'd be sort of thinking about. And then, you know, if there is potentially a clinical trial it's always with the caveats of not wanting to put too much hope in that basket but but having them available and collaborating within Australia to to have our patients know what's going on um, in terms of access to these clinical trials around the different states so you know there's, there's 
apps and things and so forth. But, um, you know, that communication is, is very important, I think, yeah. yeah. Vanessa, any thoughts that you have in terms of um, how we best line these treatments up for patients to sequence them properly? Yeah, I think Angeline brings up a really important point that it's, you know, you're, you're living from scan to scan and we don't have any more sort of sophisticated way of predicting when treatment resistance might occur. And I think, you know, sort of liquid biopsies and sequencing may help us with that in the future and potentially identify resistant clones much earlier in the treatment process, which will help prepare, but also help guide therapy. In terms of working out how to sequence therapies, it is really hard because with trials, as you know, we don't know if you're going to be eligible until your need arises. So having that good network among colleagues is really important. And I think preparing patients, you know, who are reaching that time where you think progression might be around the corner for, for what might happen. I, you know, preparing people for chemotherapy, sometimes I do that. Sometimes I, I think it just adds to anxiety. I think it's hard to make that decision. It's something that I work with the patients with. There are some patients who just want to know. And so fine, we, we talk to them about it. For other people, they sort of are, want to be more on a need to know basis. Yeah, no, look, thank you. So our time is now coming to a close. And so I hope there's been some useful information talked through about this important topic of improving outcomes through sequencing, diagnostics, and how to treat patients post-TKI progression. So thank you to Vanessa and Angeline. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for listening to this TOGA podcast and we hope you dial in to listen to other ones in the future.